The rest of us can turn to the book of Revelation chapter 4. The book of Revelation chapter 4, we were in Genesis, we finished up our series there, and now we're going to the other side of the Bible, towards the end, the book of Revelation. And just one note, it is Revelation, not Revelations, because this is about one person, this book. And every time you say Revelations, in reference to this book, an angel loses his harp. So we say Revelation one. We're going to be in Revelation 4 today, Revelation 5 next week, and kind of through the month of June for next month or so, we're going to skip around a little bit. Our, our theme for this summer really is worship, and then in July and August, we're going to be mostly in the book of Malachi. Uh, so Revelation 4 and 5, two of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. So uh, you may have to push back your lunch reservation. If I get on a roll, we'll see what happens. Um, but I, I love these chapters of Scripture. will be Revelation 4. I'm going to read from the ESV. 1 through 11, Revelation chapter 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast down their, throne, their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Our Father and God, we pray this morning that you would help us in worship, uh, not just here but in our whole lives, that this scene of worship would come alive to us by your Spirit and cause us to praise you and your Son, Jesus Christ. Our prayer is simple. Make us, Lord, more faithful worshipers because you are worthy. Amen. Alan Cameron was a member of the Covenant Church of Scotland in the 1700s, and he was imprisoned for his faith. He spoke out against the King of Scotland, refusing to confess that the King was the head of the Church of Scotland. 
He confessed that only Christ is Lord of the church. For his rebellion, he was imprisoned and sentenced to death. His son was killed the day before him for also rebelling against the king for the same reason. And after his son's death, the guards of Alan came and brought his son's severed head and hands to Alan, asking, do you recognize these? He responded, They are my sons, my own dear sons. And he added, It is the Lord. Good is the will of the Lord, who cannot wrong me nor mine, but has made goodness and mercy to follow us all our days. How was he able to do that? To make that kind of confession of praise and worship following the execution of his own son. He, like every martyr for the faith in Christ, had a vision of God and his glory that empowered him to live faithfully in worship no matter the circumstance. It's the same reason this vision is given to John here in the book of Revelation. If you know the book of Revelation, you know it was written by the Apostle John towards the end of his life while he was exiled on the island of Patmos. He was the last living apostle, exiled on an island in the Mediterranean under Roman persecution. And the church was beginning to be faced more and more persecution under Rome. And in the midst of that trial, in the midst of that tribulation, God gives to John a revelation, a revealing of the victory and the triumph of Jesus Christ the Lamb that is the whole book of Revelation. And it really kicks off here in Revelation 4 and 5, this vision of the throne of God, this worship that goes on in heaven. And that worship that goes on in heaven is there to inspire John, inspire the rest of the church for all time, to continue praising God for he is worthy, and to empower the church to worship in the midst of trial and tribulation. And I believe, and what I want to make the case to you today, is that this worship that goes on in heaven is serve, serves for us a pattern of what our worship should be like. Uh, not in every detail. I don't think we're going to have four living, winged creatures with eyes all over in the midst of us, but the, 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 the culture and the content of the worship and what goes on there ought to serve as a pattern for us here on earth. And I'll sum up the message of this chapter in this way, that God's enthronement in heaven conducts our worship on earth. That God's enthronement in heaven conducts our worship on earth, but because he is enthroned, he is praised, he is high and mighty, that because of that, we now worship on earth, and the way he's praised ought to shape the way we praise here. So as we begin our summer thinking about worship, this is, I think, an appropriate place to start, to look at the worship in heaven and say, how is God worship there? How can we follow suit? God's enthronement in heaven conducts our worship on earth. Now, as we unpack this, I'm just going to unpack this by asking four simple questions. Where, who, how, and why? Simple questions to unpack the text. We're, we're going to jump around in the verses a lot, but hopefully we'll be able to guide you through as we unpack those four questions. The first question, the question of where. Specifically, where is God praised? Where is God praised? Now, obvious answer is heaven. 
But we'll unpack that a little bit. And set the scene for this praise of God. Where is God praised? We start in verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. As I said, the, the I here, the one who's speaking, is, uh, is John, the Apostle John, last of the twelve apostles, alive under persecution under the Roman Empire, exiled on the island of Patmos. And here begins the, the series of visions he will have of Jesus and his triumph in Revelation. But you notice it says, after this. So we say, well, after what? What comes before, before Revelation 4 and 5 in Scripture? Revelation 2 and 3. Obvious. But what are the contents of Revelation 2 and 3? Those are the, the letters to the churches in Turkey. There are seven churches in Turkey and Asia Minor, and they are given letters from Jesus Christ himself through John to those churches. And if you know the content of, of those letters to those churches, uh, basically the, the message of those letters is endure and be faithful and conquer in the end. Stay faithful to Jesus Christ, and you'll be given a crown of life, and eternal life forever. That's kind of the, the overall message of those letters to the churches. And the churches are in various states. Some of them are doing really well and thriving. Some of them are, are staying faithful but persecuted. Others have all sorts of corruption in them and are called to repent. And the churches are in various places, but the message to all of them is the same. Endure. Stay faithful to Jesus Christ in the end, and you will be rewarded with eternal life with God forever. So that's the message that goes out, and then after this, a vision is given. And those two are related, because this vision of God on the throne is how those churches are going to endure and stay faithful. Here's the call, stay faithful and endure. Now here's what's going to help you fill out and fulfill that call as a vision of who God is in heaven, enthroned. And that's what John is given to see. He's called up. He sees a door in heaven with a trumpet-like voice calling him up. He's given, as it were, a glimpse behind the curtain. You may have had the same confusion and awe that I have every time I accidentally hit Control-U on a website and I see the code. Like, I don't know if you guys have ever done that. And, oh, it's like looking into the matrix. Like, mystery and awe. He's given a, a, a revelation of what's going on behind the scenes. This is a glimpse, a small sliver of heaven, and really the center of heaven. Because what he sees is a throne. This throne is one of the key themes in Revelation. Thrones are mentioned 38 times in the book, and 17 of them right here in 4 and 5. This throne is at the center of heaven itself, and John describes some of the properties of what was around this throne in verses 3 and 6. Around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. It's hard to picture exactly what this looks like. And I think these images are given more than anything to evoke a feeling, to give a vibe, if you will. A vibe of awe and beauty and splendor. Because they are confusing images. What does a rainbow of emerald look like? This emerald rainbow that encircles the throne like a halo. And before the throne is a sea of glass. 
Some say this image is drawn from the expanse in Genesis 1 that separated the waters. But you know your Old Testament, you know your Bible, you know that the sea is pictured all over the place, often as a tool of judgment or purification, the flood, the Red Sea. For the Israelite mind, the sea was often a chaotic place, but here is a sea of glass, which would be a perfectly still, peaceful sea, almost as if you could walk on water, pure, like crystal. It's just a vision, a picture of purity and beauty and majesty that surrounds this throne. It's the setting. The setting is heaven. Now I want to ask a simple question. It's not a trick question, just a simple one. And we assumed this answer in the beginning. But the answer, or the question is... Should our worship look like the worship that happens in Revelation 4 and 5? On the one hand, say, well, it can't look completely like that. That's, that's heaven and it's weird images and pictures. But should we look to Revelation 4 and 5 and say, this ought to inspire our worship? Like, we should pattern our worship off of this in some way, somehow? Should we take lessons for our worship? Should our worship be primarily, fundamentally based on these chapters? And I would say, yes. That these are given here specifically so that we might know how to worship. After all, how is this scene of worship introduced? I will show you what must take place after this. In other words, this is a necessity. This scene of worship around the throne is not something that's optional. It's not something that may or may not happen. This is what must take place. This is the end of all things. This is the, the encapsulation of all of God's work. This scene of all creation, as we'll see in Revelation 5, bowing before the throne of God. This is where it all leads. This is where it's all heading to. This is what must take place. And if that's the case, then we here, in some ways, are in a dress rehearsal for that day. Like we are practicing. And if you know any athletes, say you practice like you want to play. So Revelation 4 and 5 here are setting kind of the ultimate scene of worship for us to aspire to, for us to base our worship off of. Why is that important? It means that our worship is not based off of how we feel. Our worship is not based off of what our preferences might be. What has our church history always done? What did the reformers do in the past? What what kind of church did I grow up with? What were the traditions I have held on to? None of those things are the pattern, ultimately, or basis for our worship. Here, Revelation 4 and 5, the ultimate worship, let's look here first and set that as a pattern for our worship. Not what we prefer, not what we heard on the radio that day. Here, Revelation 4 and 5, the scene of worship in heaven. If this is what heavenly worship is, I think we ought to look there. We can assume this is perfect, God-honoring, edifying worship. It's in heaven. What is it like when God is worshipped in heaven? Leads to our next question. Next question is who? We ask where, now who? By whom is God praised? By whom? Who are these people praising God or creatures praising God? And we'll see there are two types of beings in this chapter that are circled around the throne of God. First, the elders in verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. 
And then the living creatures of verses 6 and 8, and 6 through 8, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. So who or what are these? Let's talk about the 24 elders first. Who are they? The, the first question is, are they human? Are they angels? And people are split on this. Maybe they're human, because if you look at Revelation 2 and 3, the saints, when they're graduated to heaven, or they are promised by Jesus they'll be given white robes and a crown. These guys have white robes and a crown, so maybe they are humans. There's 24 of them. Maybe that's significant. 24 could be, could be kind of an addition of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. That happens later on in the end of Revelation, the New Jerusalem. The leaders of Israel, the leaders of the church, together as one people, and this 24 elders representing, maybe they are actually the 12 patriarchs of Israel and the 12 apostles themselves in this circle around the throne. Could be. But if you read on Revelation, you also see that these elders are differentiated from the saints in heaven. So it appears that they may not be human. They may not be the saints who have graduated. So there's a question. I, I don't know exactly who they are. I do know that they are holy in white robes, royal in golden crowns, and they circle around the throne. And actually what this is is a political scene. It's a uh, royal court, if you will. What one might imagine around Caesar and his throne and the rulers and the people of the court around. Here are the heavenly rulers, the powerful ones in heaven, and they are bowing down to God on the throne. And then closer to this ring of royal rulers is the four living creatures on either side of the throne. There are four of them, and if you've read your Bibles, you've seen them or angels like them before. There are, in the Old Testament, really two scenes of the throne of God, visions of the throne of God. Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 1. If you remember in Isaiah 6, there's seraphim, which are six winged creatures who are there in the throne room of God. And then in Ezekiel 1, there are living creatures that have four faces, like a lion, ox, eagle, and a man. And in Ezekiel 1, those beings have eyes all over them. And these beings here seem to be a combination of those two images, the seraphim of Isaiah 6, the cherubim of Ezekiel 1, kind of combined together in these living creatures and there are all sorts of weird theories as to what these four living creatures might represent. So I'll throw some fun ones out for you. Some say they represent the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then nobody agrees as to which is which. Some say they represent the Babylonian Zodiac. And it's kind of an argument against the Babylonian Zodiac. You know, these are the higher beings. Some say they represent different attributes of God. The strength or majesty of a lion and the service of an ox, the wisdom of man, swiftness of an eagle, those kinds of things. Probably simplest to say, they just represent 
the created order, untamed animals, the lion, tamed animals with an ox, birds of the air with an eagle, and intelligent life with a man, or someone with the face of a man. Ultimately, I don't know. There's these mysterious creatures, six wings, eyes all around, they see everything. Those eyes all around, kind of a figure of omniscience, able to see all things. And they also worship the throne, or the one seated on the throne. I think what's important about this is it shows us very clearly that we are not the center of worship. In fact, depending on how you interpret this, I think it's very likely we're not even there yet. Here you have God on the throne, and those closest to him, these powerful heavenly beings, all worshiping God, and they're doing it all without our help. Which is to say, God doesn't need us. He is worthy all on his own. He'll be worshipped one way or another, whether it's by these heavenly beings or the rocks themselves. There's a, a popular worship song, and you may know the line. It says, you didn't want heaven without us, so Jesus, you brought heaven down. Which, by the way, is theologically true. That, that's a theologically, biblically true statement. You didn't want heaven without us. That is true. God desires that people be saved, that heaven be filled with his worshipers. That's all throughout scripture. And he brought heaven down in the form of Jesus Christ. He brought heaven to us because we weren't going to work our way there. So that's a theologically true statement, right? So I'm not critiquing the song in that way. However, it's very easy for us to hear that and think God could not have heaven without us. is objectively false. Here in heaven, worship takes place, and God is praised without our effort. He is the center. These royal beings worship him. Which brings up a question. Who's the target of our worship? Who's at the center of our worship? Who's the audience in our worship? If you answer that on Sunday morning we worship for the believer, you have answered wrong. And if on Sunday morning you say we worship for the non-believer, you've answered wrong. We worship for an audience of one. There is one at the center of our worship. And we all have within us a tendency towards self-worship, to make ourselves the center of worship. How do I know that? Because of the questions we ask on the way home from worship. How did that make you feel? How did you feel about worship today? Do you like those songs? I don't know, I kind of feel like it went a little bit long. I don't know if I'm going to go to worship today because I'm not really feeling like it. Anytime we say anything around that, we have revealed that we think worship's about us. 
That we actually think we're the center of worship. We actually think that we gather here on Sunday mornings for us, first and foremost. Wrong. First and foremost, we gather together because that's what's going on in heaven. Because around the throne are beings more powerful and mysterious than we, around the throne, worshiping one God. And we come to join in on what is already happening. We're not starting something new. We're not doing a new thing. We are joining in and gathering what is already going on in worship, recognizing that it is about Him and not us. So when we come, we lay our preferences down. We lay our biases down. We lay our self-centeredness down because God is the one on the throne and these heavenly beings all worship Him and so should we. He is the one that is worshipped at the center. May we be part of that eternal group praising Him. You say, how do we do it? That's the third question. How is God praised? How? We have some clues as to how God is praised in verses 8 and 9. Verse 8b, And day and night they never cease to say. In verse 9, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. So it starts with the living creatures. And what do they do? They never cease to say day and night, and we'll get to what they say, but the point here is this. They don't stop worshiping. They worship unceasingly. Why? Because God never stops being worthy of worship. Do we worship unceasingly? How easy is it to stop our worship? I'm going to poke gently here for a few minutes. And maybe this isn't fair on Memorial Day weekend where a lot of people are out. But how easy is it for us to not worship? We look at these beings, they worship day and night, which is a way to say they never stop. How easy is it for us to stop? I've been thinking about this post-COVID. Something happened during those two years where it became a lot easier for people to miss church. Just generally. I'm there with you. I'm kind of obligated to be here. I don't know what my life would be like if I wasn't, you know, but I would hope, I would say, that still, you know, Sunday would be home for me. But it is. It's harder to get up and do anything anymore. We're tired, feel anxious about things, anxieties on their eyes, discouragement on their eyes. We're not happy with the world around us or the world within us. And the ironic thing is the best cure for that is worship and taking our eyes off of ourselves and giving praise to another. But it's easy for us to be discouraged and not join in worship. So here's my encouragement from Revelation 4. Don't cease your worship. Let Sunday morning be a springboard for worship throughout the whole week. One of the things I was thinking about as I was reflecting on this is just what this conversation might be like in heaven. I don't think this will be a real conversation. But if Jesus were to ask you, why do you miss church so much? The 24 elders, the four living creatures, day and night, never ceasing to worship. Why was it so easy for you to stop worshiping? 
Well, church was a long drive. Like, what answer are you going to give that's going to be sufficient in that moment? You know, somebody really offended me at church once, so I figured I'd stop praising God. Kids sports? Really busy. So busy that God's no longer on the throne? Like that busy? I done done poking. They worship unceasingly. Notice they also worship humbly. Starts with living creatures and the elders. They get off their thrones and cast their crowns. They remove themselves from their place of priority and give all praise to God. Reminded of King George II's response to Handel's Messiah. Many of you know this. Legend has it when Handel wrote his great symphony, the Messiah, he, particularly as he finished writing the Hallelujah Chorus, said, I did think I saw heaven open and saw the very face of God. He was almost raptured up, as he said, like John was. It was an out-of-body experience as he wrote his symphony. Then, as the story goes, in 1743, when Handel's Messiah was played live, and the hallelujah chorus was played, hallelujah, hallelujah, and the line, the king of kings, was sung, the king George II got out of his chair and stood. And that began a tradition that still goes on to this day. If you ever see Handel's Messiah play live, at that moment of the hallelujah chorus, everybody rises to their feet in recognition, same recognition that King George had, of the true king. The same way we stand when esteemed people enter the room, the king stood in recognition of the true king, God Almighty, as a gesture honoring the true God. We worship with that same disposition, honoring the true God. Whatever the gesture is, whether it's raising hands, whether it's bowing low, whatever the gesture is, we come into worship with an attitude, with a posture of, we are taking our crowns off, we are getting off of our thrones, and we are placing them before God. So here's a word, and I want to talk maybe specifically to, to all of us, but to those who lead in worship, whether that's speaking, whether it's playing a musical instrument, whatever it may be, if you're on this stage, let me commend you. You come with this heart and this attitude, humbly. Not to show off all your skill, though you have it, and though I want you to use it in praising. We want to worship with excellence, but for those of you who lead, do this humbly. It's not about you. That'll free you up from all embarrassment, free you up from all reservation to know you are here leading others into the humble praise of God. It's not about you. It's not about anybody on the stage. It is about all of us worshiping God humbly, for he is worthy. Which leads to the fourth question, why? The last question, why is God praised? Why is worship about him and not on us? Why is God praised? There's a few descriptions of God throughout this passage, so I'll jump back to verse 3. He who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. In verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. So here we have a couple descriptions of God's glory, so to speak. Notice, 
very careful not to give an actual physical description of God. We don't want to break the second commandment. And we know God is not invisible. 1 Timothy 6.16, God dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. So there's no description of God himself, but there's descriptions of his glory, his radiant appearance, having an unapproachable light. And that's what the stones represent. He has the appearance of precious stones and maybe even diamonds, depending on how you translate carnelian there, that reflect shining and radiant light of various colors. And from his throne come thunder and lightning and rumbling. And glory radiates in sight and sound and feel. The lightning and thunder are reminiscent of Mount Sinai when God descended on Sinai and gave Moses the law. There was thunder and lightning and cloud all emanating from the throne. And around the throne are seven torches. Those seven torches of fire represent the seven spirits of God, which is the way to say it's full Holy Spirit, the full presence of his spirit in holy flame. So here's this series of images and pictures God is presented with light and purity and color and shining, lightning, thunder, holy fire and flame. All of it to present his glorious purity and beauty. And it provokes the elders and living creatures to sing. There are two songs in Revelation 4. There are more in Revelation 5. And in fact, there are more songs in the book of Revelation than any other book of the Bible besides the Psalms. Revelation is a book of songs and praises. The first is a song of the living creatures, and they sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The living creatures at the inner circle, they praise God for three things. First is holiness. Holy, holy, holy. Echoing Isaiah 6, the thrice holy God. No one is like him. No one is pure and good and right as he is. He is unique. God is alone in his godhood. There is no one like him. They praise God for being Lord God Almighty. They praise his power, his strength, his sovereignty. He is Lord of lords and King of kings. Nobody can touch his power and his might. He has control over all things. And he is the one who was and is and is to come, which is the way of saying God is eternal. He was, is, and is to come. It's almost a variation of his name, Yahweh. I am, or I will be what I will be. You notice there, it doesn't just say, though, who was and is and will be. It's who was and is and is to come, which is a way of saying he has always existed He will always exist, but he won't just exist, he will do. There is more action of God coming in judgment and salvation. There is work yet to do that you will see. He is to come. And when those living creatures sing this song about who God is, it then prompts the elders to sing their song about what God has done. Verse 11 Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Why is God worthy of all praise and glory and honor? Because he created all things. He is the rightful owner, the creator, the Lord over all, and by his will they are created which should be a wonderful encouragement to us and to you. Why were you created? Why do you exist? Why are you here? 
because the sovereign Lord of the universe decided. He willed it. The God above all, by his will, you exist and you live. So are you facing a trial, discouragement? John, as you're exiled on Patmos. Church, as you're suffering Roman persecution. Whatever trouble you may be in, you remember, the God of the universe is the creator of all things, and by his will you live. Not to beat a dead horse, but just consider with me. What's the content of these songs? Who are they about? These worship songs are thoroughly theocentric. They're about who God is and what he has done. Now, just encourage you as you listen to worship songs and think about what is a worship song. Ask yourself, who is this about? What you may find, shockingly often, is that worship songs are kind of about us. A lot of worship songs are about what we're going to do, what I'm going to feel, how I'm going to praise. And there's a time and place for that. But first and foremost, a worship song is about God, about who he is and what he's done. That's essentially how I, very personally, how I grade worship songs. As I'm singing this, who's this about? Am I praising myself as I sing this? about how committed I am to the Lord. Because I tell you what, those worship songs aren't very encouraging to me when I'm honest. The songs that encourage me are the ones that lift my eyes to somebody higher than I, that are about God, who he is, and what he's done. I think these songs ought to shape our worship, giving a vision of God and his greatness and who he is, You may have heard of the religion of Shilaism. Has anybody heard of that? It's from a study years and years ago, a religious survey. People were asked what religion they practiced, and one woman by the name of Sheila said, I practice Shilaism. I decide what's right and wrong. I determine the rules of the religion, and I determine truth. Somebody asked, well, how, how do you determine truth? said, just by my own little voice. That's Shilaism. Let's follow our own little voices. I think that's the religion of the world today. Everybody doing what's right in their own eyes. We follow our own voices, our own preferences. What Revelation 4 and what Revelation 5 do is they recenter us, not on Aaronism or Coleism or Chrisism or Brendaism, but on God. God's enthronement in heaven conducts our worship on earth. 
Just one note as we close. You might say, what if I don't feel like worshiping? What if I don't want to worship? Maybe I don't know how to worship. I want to encourage you with one last note. Just something I glossed over earlier. Who is it that calls John into worship? He said in the beginning, I heard the voice like at the first. It was like a trumpet. Who is this one with a trumpet-like voice who previously called John, who now calls him into heaven? You could turn back in Revelation 1 and find out in Revelation 1.10, which says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, it's John speaking, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Who is that one with the trumpet-like voice who called John and now calls John into heaven to worship God and gives him a glimpse of heaven? It's the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. Which means we enter into the worship of God by way of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. He's the one who calls us. He's the one who opens the door. He's the one who brings us into the worship of God. So if you say, I don't know how to worship. I don't know what that looks like. Sometimes I don't feel like worshiping. Rest your eyes upon Jesus Christ and you will worship. He will lead you into the praise of God. He gives us access into the throne room of God by his grace. He shows us who God it is. It is through Christ that we gain access. It is through Christ that we see the glory of God. It is through Christ that we are able to worship God as he is worthy. Follow Jesus Christ. Know who he is. Learn him. Look at him. And you will worship the God of heaven. They're linked together always, as we'll see next week. You pray with me. Father, lift our eyes. I confess too often to discouragement, to um, angst, to frustration. Um, And almost always, Lord, just about, maybe always, it's because I've failed to lift my eyes towards you. And so pray that these Uh, words from Revelation 4 and 5 would prompt us to look upward, to look into heaven through the way of Jesus Christ and see you praised and on the throne and in control of all things, glorious and beautiful, and we would find our rest and our peace and our joy in your glory, the glory of God the Father. Thank you for your spirit, for your perfection, for your power. Thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.